This episode is brought to you by Levitt Pavilion. This summer, check out one of my favorite outdoor concert venues in Denver, Levitt Pavilion. May through October, Levitt is offering ticketed and totally free all-ages concerts. I feel like we just go to anything that's free because it's like the kids can be at the show and it's people aren't weird about it and you can like bring a picnic. It's awesome. Some of the free shows this season include Iskali, Melvin Seals, War and Treaty, Sunny War, Chali Tuna, and more. To RSVP for free shows and buy tickets, plus see the full concert schedule, go to levittdenver.org. That's levittdenver.org. Today on CityCast Denver. It's time for the lawyers to fight over abortion reversal drugs, whatever those are. Plus, how guns are dividing Democrats at the Capitol and weed. 420 is over and the industry is reeling. So what does it all mean for you? It's Tuesday and me and producer Paul Caroli are digging into all the local stories that matter. Today is Tuesday, April 25th. I'm Bree Davies and here's what Denver's talking about. Hi, Paul. Good morning, Bree. It's Tuesday. We're talking about stories that we found interesting in the last week. Absolutely. Current story. This is our current events section. I always loved current events in school. Anyway, that's why I'm a journalist. Okay. Well, there's a really fun one. Can we start with the uh, the Bandamere Speedway? Yes. What's okay. going on with Bandamere? Because I don't know this place. I've never been there, but it's. I know it's an institution, especially for... Um, uh, I think mostly conservative folks in, in the mm. suburbs is my understanding. But um, I've been eager to talk to you about it because I'm betting you've been there. Do you know? What do you know about oh, yeah. Bandamere? I would also just say um, I'm from the pocket of the car world that is not the conservatives <laughs> from the suburbs. I'm from the Volkswagen world. And so those are most associated I would say with the hippie population that I grew mm-hmm. up with, I, I had a 1970 Volkswagen bus was my first car, but my family's always been Volkswagen people, including my cousin who owns new vintage, which is a Volkswagen and Subaru repair shop. And he would race his bugs at Bandemir. So oh, cool. it's always been a thing. I haven't been in many years, but it kind of feels like an old Denver thing. It's got a little bit of that old Denver vibe in terms of like when we were not as big of a city, more people came out to watch cars race, you know? Yeah, I think that is the story here with um, with the news, which is that it is closing. They announced yeah. on Friday that this is going to be the last racing season. So I, I just dug up a few facts for people who might be interested. It's, um, it's a family business, the Bandemir family. This whole thing was founded by John Bandemir Sr. back in 58. Um, it's a drag racing strip, although, you know, you race other kind of cars there as well. But for this family, at least what they say on their website is that this was part of why they wanted to build this was to help support their auto parts business, but also to provide a safe place for young people to learn about cars. Yes. It's grown a ton over the years. It started as an 8,000 seat um, stadium. Now they can seat 23,500 people. I liked this detail. Apparently on the, the National Hot Rod Association tour, it's known as Thunder Mountain. It makes sense. Like if you've been there, like it's kind of settled. It's settled against our beautiful mountain range. Like it's it's what I picture when I think of Bandemir. Is it's kind of like almost in the mountains. Mm -hmm. It's in the maybe it's in the foothills. Mm -hmm. It's just it looks like that. It does look like Thunder Mountain. 
Love it. Yeah. And apparently the altitude provides some unique challenges when it comes to like high performance engine, you know, mechanic yep. work. <laughs> I don't know this world. Um, but uh, yeah, the thinner air, something to do with less oxygen. Pretty interesting. Um, the story with why it's closing is just residential development pressure. I mean, as you sure. probably could have guessed, there's a lot of people living out near Morrison now. And uh, the Bandemir family says that they have been looking for another location to build, to rebuild the Bandemir Speedway in the next yeah. few years. But, you know, we'll see. Um, if you're curious, like I am, I'm going to probably try to get out there and see this thing for myself. The final race is scheduled for October 28th and 29th that weekend. So, oh, that's, yeah, I was going to say over the summer, it's a really fun thing to do. I would also just say, um, their branding is impeccable because up until you just explained that to me, I just associated Bandemir as like the name of some auto parts. Like that's just like a thing in auto culture. I didn't realize Bandemir was like a family. Mm-hmm. So they succeeded. The branding that's, was impeccable. That's what I always thought too. But I love learning that it was this family that had always yeah. just like really loved car racing. Man, that's a bummer. But you know, the world moves on. Things change. Yeah. This you know this place is growing. It's the constant conversation we're having. And so good luck to them. Shall we move on to some harder news? Oh, I guess. All right. Well, I think the big stuff that uh, the people are talking about right now is is happening at the Capitol. We're a few weeks out from the end of the legislative session. So this is this is crunch time for lawmakers. And there's a lot of debates, negotiations happening. One in particular, I know caught your eye, Bree. There's this question about abortion reversal drugs. What What is <sighs> happening here? Oh, Paul. Listen, I can't believe in the year 2023 we're having to have these conversations. But uh, so Governor Polis recently signed off on Senate Bill 190, which is the Deceptive Trade Practice Pregnancy Related Services. Um, It was meant to crack down on these, quote, pregnancy crisis centers, which are basically fake medical clinics that are operated by anti-abortion groups. Um, Mm -hmm. I have been a... I have been a victim of the pregnancy crisis center and that I accidentally drove to one when I was driving a friend to Planned Parenthood to get an abortion. Mm-hmm. Um, they had these giant signs out front that were like ultrasounds. And, and I was like, well, that's weird. It's kind of like a used car dealership style. And that's not <laughs> the Planned Parenthood I'm used to. But they were positioned very strategically, like a couple blocks before the Planned Parenthood. Mm-hmm. And I like drove in and was like, oh, Oh, wait. Oh. And I backed out and was like, I didn't even think to have to explain this to my younger friend who's like going through or having an abortion for the first time. I was like, OK, that's not the place we're going. So let's move on. But um, that's how these these places function. They right. rely on deception. So this bill was meant to crack down on those and say it's it's illegal to do this, especially if you're advertising medical services when that's not what you provide. Well, that makes sense. I mean, this is a trend for our our state lawmakers. The Democrats in power have been wanting to protect abortion access more and more in recent years, especially since the Supreme Court ruling last year. Yeah, yeah. It's not it's definitely par for the course for Colorado. Um, It's wild to me that it was just recently we've we've been able to put some legislation into effect that says that these places shouldn't be able to falsely advertise. But Mm. here we are. Um, So it also prohibits the prescription of quote abortion reversal drugs and i'll put abortion reversal in very heavy quotations 
And I, I want to explain, first of all, this story went over my head last week because I did had never heard of abortion reversal drugs. I didn't know what these were. I didn't know that they, quote, existed. And I just want to give a little bit of background on what they're... Please do. I'm still yeah, a little it's hard confused to explain. about how this works. So more than 20 years ago, mifepristone, which was approved as a medical abortion, it's a medical abortion pill. It was uh, approved by the FDA here in the U.S. It was actually legal in France for, I think, a decade or two before. You take a series of pills, you're not pregnant anymore. What this, quote, abortion reversal drug does is in between that series of pills. So you'll take a pill and then up to 48 hours later, you take another pill. And what the uh, abortion reversal drug says it does is you take it in between there and it will stop that abortion from happening. What the folks that administer this are saying is that it blocks... Uh, the hormones, and it, so it stops the abortion. Okay. Um, these, this has not been proven. Um, there was actually a study that looked into the so-called abortion reversal pill, and the study uh, proved to be so dangerous in the middle of it that they had to discontinue it. Like women were bleeding out, and they had to go to the hospital. So hmm. it has not been widespread tested or approved. Where this comes into play is our current legislation said you can't you cannot provide these. And a religious organization, uh, a group called Bella Health and Wellness, sued the governor and said, you're infringing on our First Amendment rights by saying we can't administer this drug. And a judge hmm. in Colorado has upheld that and said this infringes on their rights. And the I think the medical board of Colorado has until October to prove or disprove whether or not these abortion reversal pills work. Hmm. So where does that leave this bill that um, that Polis signed? So the bill is still in effect for the pregnancy crisis centers, but it cannot they cannot enforce stopping people from administering abortion reversal pills. So the quote abortion reversal medication can still be administered. Okay, well, appreciate you explaining that. That was very confusing. That was like so many double negatives. Exactly. I know that's the heart. That's why. And that's part of this strategy of the anti-abortion folks is like, it's confusing. It's a weird time. It also involves science. It's a lot going on. But I want to share, I'll share in our our show notes. um, I read some really great articles from CPR, as well as NPR that really explained this a little bit better. And we'll give you background information on, on abortion pills anyway. So because this is a conversation that's happening across the country. So It's complicated, but it's super necessary to talk about. All right, well, let's move on. The other um, one of the other big issues that our state lawmakers are debating this session is guns. Um, I know there was a vote or some kind of committee meeting about uh, proposed assault weapons ban last week. Bree, what happened there? Uh, The sole sponsor was Representative Elizabeth Epson. It was a ban on assault weapons. This was, you know, one of a, it was a, there was quite a few bills that we've talked about throughout the session going through to, a, to tackle this issue of gun violence. And one of them was this ban on assault weapons. Um, after like, I think it was 15 hours of testimony from hundreds of people on both sides, um, the bill got pretty watered down and then it just, it didn't pass. And I think the interesting component of this was that three Democratic representatives uh, voted against it as well, which was mm. what ultimately tanked it. Um, what do you make of that? Democrats crossing the line to vote against a gun regulation. I think that it's a signal of the fact that the next generation of Democrats is going to look a lot different than what we know about Democrats today. 
because uh, I just I just go back to that conversation I had with the students at East High School and how um, just how straightforward they were about gun violence issues. And we're like, this is a problem that we were we we're our generation is going to solve if you're not going to solve it for us. And um, I just I think that there's a type of Democrat that is not going to make it if young people vote. And it's this kind of person that seems to stand on the side of supporting uh, gun owners, which to me as a Democrat, as long as I can remember, has not been something that we support. Um, But what was interesting about this was Representative uh, Tom Sullivan, who we've had on the show, his son died in the Aurora Theater shooting, didn't support it either um, because he said uh, he would like to see measures like his own, which would be improving red flag laws. And he saw that as a better solution. So this is something that I would love to learn more about why the assault weapons component of this is so difficult for us to get through as a country. Yeah. I I mean, I, I can't speak to that specific, you know, this specific proposal, but my takeaway here is that the Democrats seem really divided on this. Like there was clearly more energy around those other gun regulations this session, like the expansion of the red flag law, the lifting the um, the purchasing age. And then Epps had this other idea that clearly was not popular with the Democratic caucus at large. And I don't know. I mean, someone pointed this out on Twitter over the weekend, but, um, you know, it's pretty easy to see shades here of 10 years ago when there was a, a huge conversation around guns after the Aurora shooting. Yeah. And a lot of Democrats went really pretty far imposing new regulations. And some of them got recalled, including in Colorado Springs and Pueblo. And and here I'm seeing of the three Democrats that, that voted no on this assault weapons ban, looks like Mark Snyder represents Colorado Springs. I got to think he would have seen that firsthand, you know, his former representative or maybe a colleague getting recalled over the gun issue and didn't want to, didn't want to be so bold this time. And that I think is the struggle I feel like for lawmakers is how do you make uh, a big difference or how do you really stand out and say, these are the things I want to change, but you also have to fear the fact that you could lose your job over that. Yeah. Um, I don't, again, I, I don't understand. Yeah, I'm I'm very confused. But I you're right, a, a Colorado Springs representative, a representative from Highlands Ranch, and a representative from Westminster were all the Dems that um, that sided with Republicans on this. And yeah, it's a tough issue in rural Colorado and these exurbs. Like, people are really, really divided on this. I think here in Denver, we see, I mean, there's a lot of visibility around the protests of gun violence, right. but we don't see the person who's just quietly owns a lot of guns and thinks that they're fine. Yeah. It's like that silent majority kind of thing happening here. And obviously that's what we're seeing play out legislatively. Uh, Again, I would say in 10 years, we might be having a very different conversation. I definitely think you're right about that. I think young people, when they get elected to these positions, we're going to have a much different conversation. I shared this anecdote with you earlier, but I I met a gentleman over the weekend when I was standing in line at a Panera who was uh, Uh around my age and had survived uh, Columbine. He was a freshman at Columbine when the Columbine shooting happened. And he said that it changed his life forever. And uh, it just it just really struck me because, you know, obviously we were having this conversation a week around this week when we were commemorating Columbine as well. So it was especially resonant in that moment. But Mm -hmm. we were just talking about, you know, did you grow up here? Oh, cool. Where'd you go to high school? And then he said Columbine. And I thought every time he has to tell somebody that this is the conversation he has to have. Yeah. 
Okay, well, obviously this session is coming to an end, so we'll be looking next year to what's going on with gun violence prevention at a legislative level. Um, but we've got some more stuff coming up, so stay tuned after this break. This episode is brought to you by the Colorado Wine Board. Because the wine community here is, like, surprisingly robust. I mean, think about Bigsby's Folly and Infinite Monkey Theorem here in Denver alone. And there are urban wineries all across the Front Range. Then there's the Western Slope, Peonia, I mean, Palisade. Hello, Palisade Wine, are you kidding me? It didn't used to really be a thing, but from what I hear, it's very much a thing now. There are more than 165 wineries across Colorado to explore, and they produce all sorts of wine that reflect our unique culture and climate. So finding a label that you're going to love is easy, no matter where your adventure takes you. Discover it for yourself and support local winemakers at coloradowine.com. That's coloradowine.com. So we're back. Paul, we've got some exclusive information from the Department of Excise and License here about what's going on with weed. Yeah, well, this is a really interesting new program that our friends at the Department of uh, Excise and License are uh, announcing they're going to be implementing starting uh, later this year. And so if you're not familiar, this is the department that regulates uh, the local cannabis industry. So for all those people, when you like fill out the forms to open a dispensary, it's the Department of Excise and License that says yes or no, or ask you questions about it. So that department, they have this new program, they're calling it Cannabis Cares. And it's basically a, a social impact program. It's designed to help consumers learn more about the cannabis businesses that they are patronizing. So specifically, how it will work is uh, all cannabis businesses are already required to submit a social impact plan. So that includes information about how they intend to support diversity and inclusion, promote sustainability, do community engagement with the neighborhood that they're going into. But the thing with these plans is that there's no requirements on them. Um, <laughs> right. And uh, I was talking to someone at the Department of Excise and License, and they were saying that many of the plans are subpar. It sounds mm -hmm. like it's mostly just a box that some people check. Mm -hmm. But some dispensaries, some cannabis companies really go above and beyond to try to do a good job at this and to have a positive impact on their communities. Some people see that as a way to improve their business. Um, so what the department is doing is creating this program to help consumers see which is which. Um, and it's going to be through this public badge system. Um, so there's no punishment for bad behavior or like lack of positive impact. If you're, if you're a dispensary and you're not fulfilling your social impact goals, but if you are, if you're say fulfilling like, you know, a certain amount of criteria, you would earn a badge for sustainability. And then they have these badges. We'll put the pictures of them in our newsletter. They're very, They're very cool. cute. Um, but you can like put that on your window of your business or you could put it in an uh. email blast or you can promote like, hey, we are, we are according to the city, um, doing a good amount of community engagement as, as you know, Dispensary X. <laughs> what do you think? Tell me about it, Brie. Oh, Paul. Okay. This feels like, hmm. I think that this is uh, interesting in theory. Mm -hmm. uh, the real issue, as I think we've learned from interviews we've done over the years with this show, is the real issue here is real estate. 
like <laughs> who owns these businesses why they're allowed to own like it's it's about money and in denver that means it's about real estate so i think until that's actually addressed i don't think that these social impact things are going to make much of a difference personally. well as a consumer don't you th- wouldn't you prefer to shop at a at a dispensary that has the sustainability badge on the window versus one that doesn't I'm an edibles person. I have very specific edibles that I buy, very specific brands. And I would like to think that it would because I I would think about it as like a supporting a local business mindset. Like it would be something I would want to do. It's like I would like to support the one that's sustainable. But in reality, it's like who has the best deal on the things I like, Yeah, the products I like. That's the reality. Yeah. Sorry. It's huge. It's huge, I think. It's price. It's convenience. You know, Mm -hmm. you're going to drive 10 minutes further to get the to the place that has the badge for social equity or whatever. I don't know. What about you, Paul? Uh, Maybe. Maybe. I did stop going to a dispensary maybe a couple of years ago when they put up a sticker that said, like, this place is, you know, friends with the Aurora Police Department. It was just like, eh, I don't know. I don't, I don't, I just don't like the vibe there. Yeah, I was like, of, that uh, is a deterrent for me. Be like, goodbye. Nope. No, thank yeah. you. So it did it, make a difference for me in that situation. If that sticker was instead a sustainability sticker, I'd probably still be shopping there. Okay. I tend to go where my friends tell me the good deals are. And then um, like if I don't already know a place that I'm going and then I think about the place that I go, I, the dudes are just like nice and not annoying. Which is part of the reason I love going there. Mm-hmm. But uh, we'll see. We'll see in practice how it works. Maybe it will have it make a difference. And we have another update on a story that we have talked about a while ago, which is like the weed hospitality angle and weed delivery. Well, yeah, I mean, this bigger story that's playing out in Denver with weed, I think is just fascinating. You know, and we had Cherry Creek Week last week, so we didn't get a chance to do a 420 show. I know. Uh, but there was a lot of weed news that came out, and it's giving us this look at the industry, a check-in, and which is important right now because the industry is really, really in trouble. Sales have been plummeting for two years now since right. the peak right at the beginning of the pandemic when people went weed crazy. <laughs> it's just been a, a straight decline all the way down. And the question now is, you know, how how far does it drop? Is it going to go back just to pre-pandemic prices or not? And mm. to me, when I look at that, I think this reflects people's habits and lifestyles and what people want out of weed. And that's that's the exciting part of this whole like legal weed experiment to me is, what do people actually want out of this? Um, yeah, what does that say to you? Maybe maybe after the pandemic, people really aren't wanting to spend their time with pot. Maybe they're wanting to spend more time, you know, socially, soberly, going yeah. on hikes. I don't know. I was thinking about this because I was like, oh, I know a lot of folks had that realization. Like, man, I smoked way too much weed during the pandemic. And uh, But then I also thought a lot of folks were reevaluating their relationship with alcohol. And then I went to the grocery store. And I was like, that's not true at all. My entire my entire bread section of my grocery store has now been taken over by wine. <laughs> wine, I, it's my it's my hill I'm now going to die on. I'm so pissed that we did this. It's taking up valuable real estate <laughs> in my grocery store. And it's annoying. It sucks. It's like beer and wine have taken over for half of the store. So I would be curious if people are actually in practice doing that. Or maybe they're just going back to alcohol. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. I, honestly, I think alcohol sales are down too. Craft beer sales are down. The whole national market. Yeah, I was reading about um, the beverage industry over the weekend. It's pretty interesting stuff. 
Um, but there's the regulations and like, what do people want out of weed and this push pull of like, is there too much pressure on these companies? Is there not enough? Are we, are we throttling the industry here in Colorado? Are we not taking advantage of our, you know, the first mover advantage of legalizing early? And I think one, one really, um, indicative story is this, the case of this Tetra lounge, which free yes. you remember we visited, we visited. Mm-hmm. a little over a year ago right before 420 last year it was supposed to be the second ever public uh consumption spot um there was a big press conference there with mayor hancock right before 420 last year when they were rolling out these new regulations the owner Dwayne benjamin was super excited he was finally going to be able to take his private <sighs> weed club public and you know being to be able to cater to this this market of people who wanted to at least we thought wanted to be able to go smoke weed in public. But unfortunately, Dwayne Benjamin has not yet been able to open. It has been what? now more than a year and it is still not open. <gasps> oh. I'm going to quote again. From- can we talk about equity here? This is a black man trying to run a business in the world of weed. Huh? Okay. Equity or not. Is this really happening or not? Man, this bums me out for him. Totally. I mean, think this, here's what he's dealing with. This is a quote from Westward. He says, under the code I'm being forced to operate under, indoor vaping wouldn't be allowed without over $250,000 in ventilation upgrades. Because of that, I've had to transition to outdoor use, but there have been many issues there too. I've spent $50,000 on mechanical and building plans that they required only for them to change what they wanted and tell me to do it all over again. I w- if I was this guy, I'd be like, all right, I'm done. You guys have tried to run me into the ground and you're like, pretty successful at it honestly what yeah the hell? he's trying to start a business he's getting hit with fifty thousand dollars of like surprise costs that are just down the drain how could you possibly make money Ah, uh, what a bummer that's a bummer way to go colorado we're not figuring it out no i don't think so well if you have any thoughts on uh public consumption sites weed delivery I would love to hear from other people because I, I genuinely don't know how much these things were wanted or needed because Same. I think about you and I are homeowners, Paul. We can consume in our homes if we'd like. Uh, we can have our friends over to do that as well. A lot of folks are renters. That's not an option for them. I, I don't know. I'd just be curious what people think about that. Yeah. What do people think about that? And also, how are your habits changing after the pandemic? Yeah. Where are you with weed and alcohol? Yeah. So um, leave us a, a voicemail or send us a text at the... Uh, I don't know. What's what's the name of this hotline? <laughs> the, the public consumption party hotlines 720-500-5418. Call and leave us a voicemail with your name, neighborhood, and your take on if your habits have changed since the pandemic when it comes to consuming uh, weed or alcohol, or how you feel about the fact that we don't really have any weed bars. Uh, again, that that number is 720-500-5418. Well, Paul, thanks for that mildly depressing update on weed. Still be thinking about it. Um, Thanks. Anytime, buddy. (laughs) That's all for today here on CityCast Denver. If you enjoyed the show, why not take a minute to tell John Vandermeer Jr. about us? Rate the show wherever you get your podcasts and subscribe to our morning newsletter, Hey Denver, by texting Denver to 66866. We'll be back tomorrow morning with more news from around the city. Bye-bye. It's like an auto parts giant.
Like that was like, I was like, wow, I can't. okay, cool. 